0: Well, I have good news for you. Good news. Pull out your earplugs. Wow, there we go. Good news for you and bad news for you, depending on your perspective. The good news is... Today we end 1 Samuel. The bad news is... Today we end 1 Samuel. (laughs) Oh... We should have a little more benign song to finish the set out sometimes. Well, I'm getting a little ring up here, Ronnie. I don't know if you can hear that. Life often seems to be a circular track of recurring incidents. If we were to go back through the book of 1 Samuel and take screenshots of just say, and this is just random, you know, of every other chapter, I think that what we would see is that while some of the names of the characters will change and certainly the time frame will change of the particular narrative that's going on, but the overriding scenery that makes up the lives of the cast of characters would look pretty much like a never-ending reproduction of the same situations of life, only differing in the details And you know what, if we were to do this for our own lives, and we took a screenshot of our lives, say, every three to five years, again just totally random on that time frame, I think that we would find pretty much that same phenomenon. As we are wrapping up for Samuel today, God's people have been on an amusement park ride. And since we were just at the uh, Mall of America, where we were on the log flume, you can see Barb there, and uh, I was going to attempt to do a focal point while on the ride. But it was a little rougher than I expected, and I just saw me tossing my iPhone into the water, and I thought, yeah, I probably better put this away. So I canned that idea. But to be sure, as we're on that ride in the course of life, you know, there's there's unexpected turns, there's little jostlings back and forth, there were some sudden dips that I actually thought was the ride, that's it. (laughs) To my surprise, oh, that was a baby. And then the grand finale where you come just straight down, the water goes shooting up, and make sure you're sitting toward the back of the vehicle, just so you know, for future reference, unless you want to get soaked, then sit in the first two seats where I made my son sit which he graciously did. Well, in 1 Samuel 29, verses 1 through 5, the Philistines are gathering again. And they're gathering again for war against Israel, and the Philistine leaders notice that David and his men, now remember the love relationship between David and the Philistines, David having slaughtered their their star, Goliath, They notice he and his men are tagging along, trailing in the rear, and so they inquire of Achish. Not Achish that you eat, but Akish. Remember, Akish was the Philistine leader that David, in attempting to escape from Saul on his never-ending escapes from Saul, decides to run into the land of the Philistines, knowing that Saul's not about to chase him there, And he's in the presence of Akish now, and so he feigns insanity. And somehow, through the strange machinations of God and His sovereignty, through it all, David becomes pretty much an ally of Akish. And so at any rate, Akish tries to convince the Philistine leaders that David really is okay. That David isn't the man that he used to be, and he can be trusted but the Philistine leaders are having none of it. And frankly, the Philistine leaders are being wise because common sense would tell you that, yeah, more than likely at some point in time, David is going to turn against his arch enemies and the arch enemies of God's people. So Achish is trying to explain to him though that while he trusts him implicitly, that the others do not and that David's going to have to leave. So Akish gives pretty reasonable explanations to David in verses 6 through 10, explaining why the other lords might not trust him. Because if we go back some distance in 1 Samuel, we have to remember David's slaughter of the Philistines early on in those two inaugural battles when David was getting involved after killing Goliath. And so again, Akish's explanation to David is quite reasonable. But David is being rather annoying in refusing to listen, and somewhat childish, in fact, in his rebuttal to Akish, which we read in chapter 29, beginning in verse 11. So David arose early, he and his men to depart in the morning to return to the land of the Philistines. And the Philistines went up to Jezreel. Then it happened when David and his men came to Ziklag on that day, that the Amalekites had made a raid on the Negev and on Ziklag, and had overthrown Ziklag and burned it with fire. And they took captive the women and all who were in it, both small and great, without killing anyone, and carried them off and went their way. And when David and his men came to the city, behold, it was burned with fire, and their wives and their sons and their daughters had been taken captive. Now, if you're a human being, and that probably covers most of us in here this morning, life comes with hard choices, And few of those hard choices, at least in my experience, are usually clear-cut. In fact, they're rarely clear-cut. And they usually come with a number of pros and a number of cons. And you have to kind of wade through them for whichever direction you go. Well, David has been on the run from Saul, and he isn't going to be any help to anyone at any time if he gets dead. So David chooses self-preservation. And that's why he has left his family and his friends and his future loyal subjects completely without any protection. So we change scenes in the narrative to the city of Ziklag, which was David's home ground, that you may remember that Achish had given David early on, wherein David's wives and all of his relatives and friends, etc., were living. Now, with David on the run the Amalekites burned down David's city and they captured David's wives and his children along with those of the families of the rest of the men who were with David and his little band of brothers. Years later, a little known fact, some of them would write a song called Band on the Run, which was subsequently, I know, covered by Paul McCartney and Wings. Anyway, uh, historical narrative. So... Was David wrong to leave Ziklag unprotected? Well, it's never clearly alluded to in the text. But what is clear is that David's army is despondent themselves with grief and full of anger at David, believing now, and rightly so, that their families are gone forever. David's choice. David the leader. Oh, the joys of leadership even when God is at the center of it all. Saul is in crisis. David is in crisis. And as we've said many times before, desperate people do desperate things. But crises also tend to separate the men from the boys. Crises have a way of clarifying for an individual who and what they really are. So let's think back a minute, just for a second, to Saul. When Saul was in crisis, he ran to the medium at Endor and started invoking the powers of the forbidden occult expressly prohibited by God, which Saul knew all too well. But again, when you are in panic mode, as Saul was, you tend not to make great decisions. When David, though, is in crisis, remember, he's called the man after God's own heart, What does David do? Verse 6. When David was greatly distressed because of the people, meaning David's loyal soldiers, spoke of stoning him, for all the people were embittered, each one because of his sons and his daughters, David, in crisis, strengthened himself in the Lord his God. Was David wrong to leave his family unprotected? Verse 8. May give a little help, Whether David was derelict in his decisions, in his decision to escape from Saul instead of protecting his homeland. We read in verse 8, And David inquired of the Lord, saying, Shall I pursue this band? This band meaning those who have taken our families captive. Shall I overtake them? And the Lord said to David, Pursue, for you shall surely overtake them, and you shall surely Rescue all. Now, whether David was in the center of God's will or not, abandoning his family at Ziklag, we don't know for certain. But even when we make less than ideal decisions, the Lord shows himself to be gracious, looking at one's heart. In verses 11 through 20, David, with the help of an Egyptian servant that they happened to found out in the middle of nowhere on their way to pursuing the Amalekites, slaughters those who raided Ziklag and retrieved all their wives and all their children. And the slaughter was great by the length of time noted that it took them to kill everyone and David recovered everything they had taken, not just the people. Verses 21 to 25 is a curious detail in the narrative. Verse 10 tells us that 200 of David's men stayed behind in the attack because they were tired. And now some of the victors, meaning David's soldiers, are extremely ticked at those who were sick, lame, and or lazy, who were too tired to go into battle. But here's what the text says. Then all the wicked and worthless men among those who went with David answered and said, Because they did not go with us, we will not give them any of the spoil that we have recovered, except to every man, his wife, and his children, that they may lead them away and depart. Then David said, You must not do so, my brothers, with what the Lord has given us, the Lord who has kept us, and the Lord who delivered into our hand the band that came against us. And who will listen to you in this matter? For as his share is who goes down to the battle, so shall his share be who stays by the baggage. They shall share and share alike." And so it has been from that day forward that he even made it a statute and an ordinance for Israel to that stays to this day. Now, very peculiar emphasis here on such a seemingly minor and expected issue because it is, as I contend, a picture by intention of justification by grace and not by works. Stay with me. First point, which I don't like because it makes me look in the mirror and what I see I don't like. I happen to relate to those of David's army who are noted as being worthless and wicked warriors. But come on. Realize that All of the 600 of David's men have all been on the same track for all the time that they've been out in the field. Why are these 200 so special that they just don't feel good enough to go into battle? So they're going to stay behind and stay with the luggage. Yes, luggage. See, that's me, okay? I'm putting my personality into this. He's like, are you kidding me? You think, we've been out here, come on, we've been, really? And David, you're going to tolerate that? I mean, it was going to be a devastating massacre under normal situations, taking the Lord out of the picture as it was with 600 of David's men going against the Amalekites. Now, they've been reduced by 33%. 600 men, 200 stay behind because they're very tired, and that leaves 400 men to go into battle. Now, one of the curious details that we're told is that they were in an intense battle. Now, remember, this isn't the days of drones where the battles are done behind some place in a thing with a little video game going, look at the camera. Okay, ready, here we go. (honk) Okay, battle over. This was hand-to-hand combat. Think Braveheart. Oh... Yeah, I have never held a real broadsword. I've held a fake broadsword, right? And it's kind of like, okay, now you're really in for it. One of the main weapons that they had, and of course, maces and basically pickaxes and whatever they can find and all that. And they were in battle, we are told, from the evening of one day or twilight of one day to the evening of the next. So let's just say they're basically in combat hand-to-hand for 24 hours. 400 men, 200 staying behind a third of his army staying behind, which means if that third had been with them, they could have theoretically cut down the time of the battle from 24 hours by 8 hours. That's significant. If I am one of those guys, I'm ticked off too. (laughs) At least, I mean, come on, at least they had the heart to say, fine, we'll give them their wives and their children back. And the translation of the Hebrew is much milder than it is. But then we will drive them away from us, kick them out, not welcome them into the community. They were exhausted too, and yet they went into battle. But David's perspective is so much different than those of the wicked and worthless men like me that he's leading. David said, you must not do so, my brothers, with what the Lord has given us. For it is the Lord who has kept us, and it is the Lord who has delivered into our hand the band that came against us. David knows full well that had the Lord not been with them, giving them supernatural blessing, they would not have prevailed. And as I said, it would have been a slaughter so any notion by the warriors that went into battle of ownership of of what they they got from the battle is completely unfounded meaning neither those who went to combat nor those who remained behind earned anything they had been given so it wasn't theirs to distribute as they determined They needed to be willing to share what wasn't theirs in the first place. And this is not unlike many Christian attitudes today concerning, and this is just by way of of an illustration that came to mind, concerning the tithe of one's income when it comes up. Well, that's, wait, God wants, he he wants what? 10% of my income? Hold on. (laughs) That's my money. I get up, I go to work, I keep my nose to the grindstone, I'm exhausted in making my keep for my family. But when the believer realizes it really, truly is by God's grace that any of us are able to do what we do and that without his hand in our lives, many things would be so vastly different. I love the notion of grace when we are talking about me being the recipient of that grace. But when grace is extended to others, it can be offensive. You don't believe that? Let's have a little reality check here from the Scriptures. Jesus tells a story in Matthew 20 Sometimes it's called the parable of the vineyard workers. Let's just contextualize it and call it the parable of the apple orchard. And so it's harvest time. The drops are coming on the ground. So the 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 orchard owner wants to get help and and bring guys in here and get it all taken care of to maximize production and all of that good stuff. So he goes out and he looks for some guys. He goes, hey, uh, I need some help in my orchard. You guys willing to come? Okay, I'll hire you. I'll pay you a hundred dollars, which we'll assume was good pay. Okay, better better than what was normal. So come and I'll give you a hundred dollars, and uh, you come and do the thing, and we'll take care of it at the end of the day. And they're like, "Yes, woo! All right, baby," because they're looking for work. They wanted work. All right, uh, you're gonna get really a hundred bucks. Yes, hundred bucks. So they go, and they start working eight in the morning. And they're out there all day, and it's a hot day. Well, about three hours into the harvest, the owner's going, well, I don't like the looks of the weather and everything else. This isn't going to get done in time. I'm going to have to go hire some more people. So he goes out, and he finds some more guys sitting around doing nothing. And he says, hey, are you guys interested in in coming to work for me for the day? He says, look, if if you come right now, and you just work for me, we'll settle up at the end of the day. And they're like, yes, we're looking for work. We're there. And then there's, he goes out yet again late in the day, and he does the same thing. And he finds another group of guys. He goes, "Hey, I need help in York. You interested in coming? Come and get the, you know help us out for the hours that are left in the day. And at the end of the day, we'll settle up." So now it's the end of the day. The union apple picker whistle blows. Okay, I don't know. And so now they all go, and they're going to get paid. But the owner says, "Okay, look, I want you to start with the last guys hired and work your way down in paying them." And here's what I want you to pay them. And so the guys that were there from early morning who were thrilled to get the work and were thrilled to get $100 for the day, they see the guys who'd only worked a couple of hours and the guys out there, as the treasurer's out there handing them $100 bills. And they're going, oh, yeah, Woo! we are going to be in for a windfall today. And then he takes the next group that were there, and they worked longer than those guys, but not nearly as long as the first guys. And so, they watch him as the owner or the the treasurer hands those guys each a hundred dollars too. So they're like, okay, but you know we've been here all day, so I know, man, we're we're it's bonus time. So now those guys who had fully agreed to go to work and were excited to work for a hundred bucks, they go to get their pay, and they're just eager with anticipation. And the treasurer pulls out $100, $100, $100, $100. And now they're gone. What? Wait a minute. Okay, look. I Those guys have been here two hours. We've been here all day through the heat of the day and everything. And you paid them the same thing you paid us. It's not fair. Now, come on. It's Scripture and we go... Oh, mm, huh? whatever. But if I'm those guys working there all day, I'm going, yeah, what the heck, man? But what does the owner say? The owner says, didn't you agree with me to work for the $100? And you guys were excited about it. Are you now going to be critical of me because I'm a generous man and I determined to do what I'm going to do with my money? We are told... And I left this out purposely at the beginning of that story. Jesus says, this is a parable of the kingdom of heaven. How the first shall be last and the last shall be first. And that whether you have been around and you have been committed like the, the service uh, yesterday for Pastor Tim and just the, the amazing testimonies of of the people talking about what Pastor Tim has done for them in, in their lives and, and all of that, whether you're a Pastor Tim with years and years of serving Jesus faithfully under your belt or you're a guy who on your deathbed just truly, genuinely repents of your sins and receives forgiveness, guess what? to him. $100 to Pastor Tim. There's no injustice whatsoever. Only grace and magnificence. So sometimes we struggle with grace when it's not directed at us. So you see the fact that David has the perspective that he has really is a special guy, a man after God's own heart. David knows that we wouldn't have our families or anything if it weren't for the Lord. So this is all his, and we need to act accordingly. Well, by the end of chapter 30, David generously shares now the spoils of war, not only with his warriors and the ones who stayed back at the wuggage, but also now he goes to the surrounding countrysides and cities that are going to be his loyal subjects not too far down the historical timeline and starts distributing the spoil from the battle. Chapter 31, to the finish of the book, which we started in September of 2017. First Samuel 31, 1 through 6. The Philistines are, (laughs) remember that track? Just keeps going on. They're again assaulting Saul and those loyal to him. God's bringing to fruition the plan to remove the recalcitrant, though popular, people's choice king, preparing the way for the little runt of the litter, David. In the process, Jonathan, David's BFF, and Abinadab are both killed with Saul in battle. Even the good die at the hands of the wicked. As we're told in Matthew 5, the rain falls on the just and the unjust alike. The remaining Israelites, seeing Saul defeated, they flee from their cities. And the Philistines do what they all did in those days. They put the proof of their conquest on display for all to see. 31.11. Now when the inhabitants of Jabesh Gilead heard what the Philistines had done to Saul, all the valiant men rose and walked all night, and they took the body of Saul and the bodies of his sons from the wall of bethshan and they came to Jabesh and burned them there. And they took their bones and buried them under the tamarisk tree at Jabesh and fasted seven days. The fall of the wayward is etched in stone. Saul's life and David's life are purposely contrasted throughout 1 Samuel. Two very real, two very flawed people. God would have used Saul if, going back to chapter 9, speaking of Saul, the text said, "...about this time tomorrow I will send you a man from the land of Benjamin." And you shall anoint him to be prince over my people Israel. And he, Saul, shall deliver my people from the hand of the Philistines. For I have regarded my people because their cry has come to me. Saul could have been a great king, but his heart was never right from the beginning and did not receive the blessing of God where God desired to use him for greater purposes in his world. Saul didn't receive what God intended due to chronic disobedience, welcome to the club, but chronic disobedience devoid of repentance. And we actually read what I would call a perfect epitaph for Saul in the book of 1 Chronicles, chapter 10, verse 13. What we read is, So Saul died for his trespass which he committed against the Lord because of the word of the Lord which he did not keep and also because he asked counsel of a medium making inquiry of it and did not inquire of the Lord. Therefore, he killed him and turned the kingdom to David, the son of Jesse. Thinking back now, 15 months ago or 16, Saul's first big mission before he was yet anybody. He was a nobody. Do you remember what it was? It was to go out and look for some sheep that belonged to your father. And he gets tired of looking, and his servant was sent with him, and it's his servant who keeps Saul in it. It's his servant that comes up with a plan to keep looking for the sheep and how they're going to find him. And do you remember why Saul was elected king of Israel in the first place? Quoting, He was a choice and handsome man, and there was not a more handsome person than he among the sons of Israel. From his shoulders and up, he was taller than any of the people. God would have worked with Saul. Faithful is the one in big things who is faithful in the little things. Go out and look for some sheep. It wasn't simply that Saul's sins were particularly heinous. They were. But if we were going into Second Samuel, or you know from reading your Bibles... What David turns into and the kinds of turmoil that comes into his life and family and he actually is not complicit in, he orchestrates a hit on one of his most faithful, loyal captains of his army. Why? Because he had taken his wife. It wasn't because Saul was just a sinner. It was because that Saul was worthless in the little things and, again, he never repented. There was never a broken heart for disappointing God as when we see David sin and will continue to. We see David being very sinful, even more so than some some normal people. But David was truly smitten and crushed in his spirit and would come back to the Lord again and again. And amazingly, God in his grace said, come on, David, come on. There are consequences. No, you're not going to build my temple. Because you are a man of war and bloodshed. I'll give that to your son. But how many of us today and throughout our lives are missing on the grander purposes that God really wants to do with each and every one of us but because we have just flopped aside and and shoved aside the most seemingly to us trivial or irrelevant or, or, or just just such minor things that they don't really matter, they don't count, it's not that big of a deal, nobody's going to know, nobody's watching. How many of us are forfeiting what would amount to being on the throne, being used by God to do more powerful, greater things than even we could imagine? And if there is a single moral, there are many, to this book, it is precisely that. Later in the New Testament, the Apostle Paul says, Whatsoever you do, do wholeheartedly as unto the Lord, knowing it's him that you serve and not man. Yeah, I'm just a window cleaner. I clean the windows downtown. I hate the job. It's stupid. They just get dirty again. And so the job is done halfway. It's done schlocky. No pride in the work. It's just window cleaning. I get it. I punched stupid plastic right angles called corner guards for six years. Yeah. And then I'd make a mistake. And you know what? Nobody would know. Those mistakes are accounted for in the total whatever's and everything else. But I would have some of them boxed up in tens as we would do. I was part of the process of the whole thing. And I sit there, and for some reason, I just go, I don't know. I don't think I counted out ten. Either one more or one less. Now i got to cut all the tape, open the box up, and recount, and do whatever. And I can't even tell you how many times I did that. And yes, I was obviously tempted to go, it doesn't matter. They account for that. It's acceptable. It is not man that you serve, but God Almighty. And I'm not making this up and I'm not patting myself on the back. It's one of the successes of my life. Because it is truly the Lord that I was serving. And so I said, Yeah, I know I can get away with this. But if I'm serving God, would I go whatever? No. Reclaim your destiny of this wonder working, powerful, miracle working God of heaven. And do what seem like the little things well because he knows and he's watching. And be amazed with what he has in store for your life. Let me have you stand. Father in heaven, um, boy, I I know that I certainly did not plumb the depths of First Samuel. But I pray, oh God, that through our year and four months, that your spirit has taken my feeble attempts to elucidate your word and to make it practical. And I just pray, oh God, for everybody in here, and myself included, that instead of half-stepping in the things, in the places where nobody's watching, that we do our best at whatever it is, knowing it is you truly that we serve, and that you delight to give more and more favor, more and more responsibility to one who does the menial things well, for to whom much has been given, even more will be given to him who is faithful. Thank you for understanding us, O God. In Jesus' name we tell you, we love you. Amen.